Tom Reaney, host of the Jazz Beat Podcast at New England Public Media. And here in part two of my conversation with Peter Gorelnik about his book, Looking to Get Lost, Adventures in Music and Writing, we discussed Ray Charles, Dick Curlis, and Johnny Cash, who was a label mate of Howlin' Wolf at Sun Records in Memphis. Like Howlin' Wolf, Johnny Cash is another artist who made his first recordings for Sam Phillips at Sun Records. You say that Cash had a perspective that eludes many people. What do you mean by that? I'm trying, I actually, I, I focused on a particular thing. He did have a perspective that eludes many people, and he had a breadth of perspective. And this was something that, that made him a unique artist in terms of uh, Sam Phillips's many discoveries, uh, of, of who, you know, including Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, Kyle Perkins, Johnny Cash, Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King. And he always would say that uh, Howlin' Wolf and Charlie Rich were the most profound but the thing about Johnny Cash was he probably had the broadest perspective of any of the people, the broadest intellectual perspective. And by that, I don't mean he was more educated or that he was brighter. It's just that it, it was something that enabled him uh, to grow over the years, where at the end of his life, I mean, he was recording a song like Hurt and feeling it and hearing it and understanding it and presenting it in a manner that became uniquely personal. And that's something that, as great as Jerry Lee Lewis is, who could do things that Johnny Cash couldn't, I don't think he he, he could sing She, only, she uh, Even Woke Me Up to Say Goodbye, um, which is an amazing, amazing song by Mickey, Mickey Newberry. And he could put that across maybe better than Johnny Cash. But Johnny Cash continued to evolve, and he had a, a breadth of understanding of American history in general. And, and he, he saw it almost as his mission to grow with his music, but also to present the story of America and, you know, music and song. And uh, he continued to do it. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears a hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away but I remember everything What have I become My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end And you could have it all Of thorns, a 
upon my liar's chair Full of broken thoughts I cannot repair Beneath the stains of time The feelings disappear You are someone else I am still right here What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end And you could have it all My empire of dirt I will let you down Johnny Cash said Sam Phillips was a genius who could see me as I was and I couldn't, could see Elvis as he was and Elvis couldn't. Do you regard Phillips as being unique in this way among record producers? I don't know. I think Sam was pretty unique in that regard. And he was, you know, uh, somebody who was like Jack Clement, who was the, the first person to go to work for Sam on the musical end. I mean, he was a, a third employee at Sun, and the first was Marion Keisker, who was really more of a partner. Uh, Jack Clement said, you know, Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and all of the, them, Johnny Cash, they were all stars, but Sam was a superstar. And the reason he was a superstar, again, was because of this incredible both breadth of intellect and also feeling for what was he he considered himself almost a psychologist or maybe that's what he considered himself primarily a psychologist and a teacher and he had a feeling for what the artist was trying to do and for what and for what how the artist could best express uh, you know him or herself and uh it's he was determined to bring that out of the artist, not in a dictating, not in a dictatorial way or in a way that dictated where the artist should go, but in a way that were focused on listening uh, to what the artist was attempting to do and seeing not shortcuts to get to getting there, but ways that might enable the artist best to do it, even though if the artist uh, himself was not aware of it. So you had somebody like Carl Perkins who sings Blue Suede Shoes, he finishes a take, I don't remember which take it was, and Sam says, that's it. And and uh, Kyle Perkins says, but Mr. Phillips, there were all these mistakes in it. You know, let me do it again. There were all these mistakes. And, and Sam says, nobody's ever going to notice the mistakes. It was a feeling. And, um, you know, and, and Kyle goes on about uh, mistakes, and Sam says, that's what we are. That's what Sun Records is. We're just one big mistake. And, that, and his ability to embrace that was something that, uh, and and Johnny Cash, uh, but you know, I was thinking as I was talking about Johnny Cash's mission to sort of encompass this vast territory, in a way it's kind of like what Jacob Lawrence did with his paintings. I mean, it was telling this 
in a very uh, he, he researched Jacob Lawrence researched his paintings the text that goes along with those the panels you know of each of the uh, pieces of the story the Great Migration yeah 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 I mean but the I mean often but but also the whole thing about American history and you know he didn't just toss these off he 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 studied it and Johnny Cash all of these albums of songs of the way you know the West and um, his uh, bitter tears the story about the uh, Native Americans uh, oh and then there's his album about trains yeah I mean and, and he and he researched them he researched the blues he researched the and he, he he heard it he heard these things and he'd heard them growing up but he didn't just leave it at that so and he was such a great reader I mean that was my way in in a sense was when I went to interview him I, you know everybody had asked him everything and I didn't wanted to have to establish you were born at this date, you know, you married this person, you did this or that. I mean, I, that was all accessible to me and it was accessible to everybody. But one of the things I thought about was what a great reader he was. And uh, so I asked him about that and he started talking about James Fenimore Cooper and uh, drums uh, along the Mohawk and uh, um, and, so, and, and Wal- so Walter Scott, Ivanhoe and stuff. Uh, but then he started talking about the day that Eleanor Roosevelt had come to town to open the library in Dias, and Dias was a kind of socialist experiment. And it, it, that wasn't—it's not the centerpiece of the story. It's not—it's not that that was intended to be the subject of the story, but it opened up a whole area and gave, in a sense, a glimpse into a different kind of person than the public person. And I think it also enabled us to go some other places. So th- th- that's sort of that—that's what I try to do, and why I try to know as much as I can going in, although many of the people I've written about either had never been written about before or not written about enough to be able to glean very much, and then you just have to go on your on, on the field. In terms of record producers, how about the way that Ahmet Erdogan and Jerry Wexler may have helped Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin discover their genuine voices and styles? Not really, no. I mean, I think each of them spoke about, with Ray Charles... What all they had to do was to turn the tape machine on. I mean, once Ray had his vision of what he wanted to do, and that the first time that he did was when he called up Jerry and said, I, and that's what this chapter in, uh, in Looking to Get Lost is about, is about his discovery of his own voice with I Got a Woman. And he called up Jerry, he said, I'm ready to record with my own band, with my, you know. And Jerry and Ahmet met him in Atlanta, and they recorded him, but they recorded him exactly as he dictated or that that's a bad word but as as i mean he had he had the arrangement he had the musicians he had exactly the way he wanted to present it and the same with aretha i mean wexler's jerry wexler's genius was to recognize that she he he said i i had to put her back at the piano and also to look to her to do the kind of more gospel-based material that she was so she had grown up with and was so comfortable with but again he himself spoke extensively about how it was Aretha's genius that carried the day and it was and not that Sam Phillips said it was me that carried the day he didn't at all but he brought people to a place that they hadn't intended or expected to go and I don't think that's quite the same thing I'll tell you who who listens and I I I don't I know enough I know him but I don't know enough about his work uh to um you know, to make the judgment. But someone like T-Bone Burnett, who was producing Willie Dixon in the chapter in, in uh, Looking to Get Lost, he, uh, you, t- you take a, uh, an album like King of America that he made with Elvis Costello, and 
it just, there's a level of, it reaches a place that is entirely different from where Elvis had been before. And they've worked together since then, and I think that they're to much the same effect. And, I, and I, the last time I saw T-Bone, he was producing a Jerry Lee Lewis gospel session. It was in February of this year, or last year. And I realized at the time it was probably the last time I was going to be traveling for a long time. But again, his, his patience, his attentiveness, his willingness to listen to the artist, but at the same time to sort of gently guide the artist towards, uh, towards a place that he could hear in his head... I don't think it's the same level of. Well, I don't know. I can't. I can't say because I haven't, you know, been in the studio with him enough to know. But but it's the same type of thing that Sam was doing, and it's the same sensitivity to the artist uh, that Sam would show, and the same sense of potential that maybe had not been fully realized up to that time, or a direction maybe that hadn't been taken up till that time. Ray Charles, I love the way you recount how um, Ray and, um, and Reynold Richard arrive at I Got a Woman after hearing the, uh, the Southern Tones, It Must Be Jesus. And I have a kind of a composite of It Must Be Jesus and I Got a Woman that will weave into this um, mm-hmm. conversation. Um, they definitely fit together. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit about your experience with, uh, with Ray Charles. Well, I, this was... This chapter on um, the discovery of his own voice and of finding, composing, recomposing, it must be Jesus as I got a woman, and the effect that this had on his career and on the impact it had on not just rhythm and blues at the time, but on all the music to come. In a sense, it was a re-contextualization uh, of a long interview I had done with Ray um, and that had been the basis for a profile at the time, back, way back in the 80s. Uh, but I wanted to look at how he, the source of Ray's inspiration, the manner in which he had been able to reinvent himself, you could say, and his desperate need to reinvent himself in order to be able to go out and play his own music, not be just recapitulating music backed up by you know, uh, musicians in each town that he played. And so I, it, for me, I mean, it was really fun to write in the sense that it allowed me to go back into conversations. I mean, I, you may not have noticed, but I'm a curious fella. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I pursue a lot of things that, you know, have nothing to do with what I'm going to write about. And I feel like that's one of the things you have to do. You, I mean, in the book, I write Prize the Digression. I'm talking about writing, kind of, but I'm also talking about <laughs> when you're talking to somebody, let's say about Elvis, you don't want to treat the person as if, oh, the only thing that's important about you is that you, you know, met Elvis in a, uh, you know, in a drugstore in uh, New Orleans in 1955. I mean, it's, you know, people have their own story to tell. And so you always want to get that. And one of the things I kept coming back to over the years, over the many years, until finally I realized where I Got a Woman came from when I was talking to some of the gospel people in the Sam Cooke biography. And up until then, nobody had ever located this song. And it's a footnote in the Sam Cooke biography because, again, like so many things, I don't think... The story is not about me. The story is not about how how I came to the thing. I, I, I wrote it as if it were a given. But it came about through talking to people who really didn't concern themselves much with pop music, but who said, oh, you know... The guitarist for the Soul Stirrers, uh, 
who was the first guitarist, Bob King, who died very soon after he joined them, he was with this with this gospel group. And they had a song that was kind of like, I got a woman. And that was as much as I got. And then I've, it took a while because the internet wasn't up and running that in the way it is now. And finally I was able to hear, it must be Jesus. I said, oh my God, that's the song. Oh, there's a Peter, there's a, an Odyssean quality to the lives, so to the stories you tell and the lives that are lived by so many of your subjects. Um, I think about uh, Bob Dylan beginning his interview with uh, Martin Scorsese for No Direction Home as presenting that very idea, the, the odyssey that uh, Dylan, like so many others, uh, embark on. Um, and to me, that Odyssean quality is uh, so powerfully present in the story of the of the musician in this book that I knew the least about, and that is Dick Curlis. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm eager to tell you that when I got uh, looking to get lost, um, had it in the car with me, I'd gone over to the Quabbin Reservoir. It was a beautiful, warm September afternoon several months ago, and I took a good walk, and then I came back, and I found uh, an old bench to sit on overlooking the Quabbin, and I began reading your book. And right there in the introduction, you make several references to Dick Curlis. That drove me to the uh, table of contents. I found the Dick Curlis chapter and noticed that it's quite long, about 80 pages or so. And I, I began reading it right there at the Quabbin Reservoir. And, of course, within a matter of several paragraphs, I'm learning that Dick Curlis... Uh, spent the formative years of his life in uh, around Ware and Gilbertville and Hardwick, Massachusetts. And I was just astonished, um, you know, at the local 
uh, sort of provincial uh, experience of this, and that's a whole area of Massachusetts I know pretty well, and yet I'd never known that Dick Curlis had this uh, connection. I knew Duke. I know Duke Levine. I know Mudcat Ward. I remember Mudcat talking about the thrill he was having doing some playing with Dick Curlis, but that kind of went in one ear and out the other when Mudcat <laughs> mentioned that to me about 30 years ago. And yet there in your book is this beautiful, it's almost a morality tale of, uh, of the like life of this country uh, singer and guitarist. And speaking of a, a man who I think knew that he had a voice from very early in his life was uh, Dick Curlis. He did, and yet he lost the voice, and then he and then he regained it, in a certain sense. I mean, he he had a true voice, and in some ways, so much of his life was spent reducing that self-expression to a kind of form of commercial expression, and and being frustrated, and not being clear on what he wanted, and then at the end of his life, rediscovering that voice and bringing it home in a way that was so much vaster and 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 more ambitious than anything he had ever done before. How did you uh, discover Dick Curlis for yourself? Well, <laughs> let me ask you, was his a, a name in country music that you knew all through the years, as it were? Uh, I knew him because, uh, he, among other things, because I would see him in different places. In, uh, you know, I think I saw him at Symphony Hall in a country music Shower of Stars that WCOP put on or at Hillbilly Ranch. I didn't necessarily go to see him in particular, but... I, I was well aware of him, and I don't think it was, it wasn't because of, you know, in the history of country music, that wasn't so much, but it was because he was a local uh, personality. But I, and I met him finally when he played a, uh, shared a bill with a Sleepy Labeef at Allen's Truck Stop in Amesbury, Mass. And Sleepy introduced me to him, and Sleepy had such great respect for him. And uh, when Sleepy had respect for somebody, that really meant something to me. He was the most charming performer in the world, and the audience always loved him. And again, this may be my lack of perception, but it, it, I never saw him in a way that went beyond that. It was just he had the ability to be, to charm the audience. He had this kind of trick-based voice that he would use um, in a drop to, and it was kind of amazing and thrilling and stuff. And he had his... Uh, you know, truck driving songs, uh, particularly Tombstone Every Mile, but other truck driving songs that he would feature in the act. But it, it was more of the way I saw it at the time, and I may have completely missed the point. It was more of a crowd-pleasing thing, and I didn't see him in other contexts where he was doing the kind of music that he had grown up with and music that sort of reached the the very depths of his soul. And I think he did do shows like that, and he did, and he sang in, around the house. He sang with his father, he sang with his brother, he sang with his uh, son-in-law, uh, his daughter Terry's husband, uh, Bill Chinnick, uh, and uh, he was always singing, but I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't see that part of it. So that's how I knew him, but it, but it was Mudcat. Jake, my son Jake and I produced the Sleepy LaBeef album, um, Strange Things Happening. Uh, Jake really produced it. I was just had my name on it. Uh, I was an add-on. But, uh, and then Mud and the... Uh, the uh, musicians were so great, and Mudcat said, "Well, we ought to, uh, you know, reassemble. We ought to do a Dick Curlis album." And this coincided with Dick calling Rounder, where Jake worked, and he wanted something like a, um, a Merle Travis video or something. But I, but anyway, he and Dick, Jake started talking. 
uh, and uh, he sent Jake a sort of demo tape, and um, that's how this album came about. And I had nothing to do with any of that, other than when Jake played me the demo tape, I said, oh my God, this is incredible, because it was, it was a different kind of music than anything I had ever heard Dick do. It was both the roots of his music and an extension of everything that he had ever done. So I asked Jake, I begged Jake, I said, please, can I write the liner notes? And then I persuaded myself that in order to write the liner notes, I had to go out for the session, <laughs> and, uh, which was at Longview Farm, which is in uh, the town that... North Brookfield. Yeah, which is where Dick had his first public performance when he was 16 years old. So, uh, and it was just, it was just one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. I've never had anything like that in the studio. It was just exalting and it was inspiring. And that's where the chapter started out. But the chapter itself turned in so many different directions. I mean, it, it's actually, a, it's like a novella. It's like a real-life novella. And there were so many depths. Uh, as Solomon Burke said, you know, I, I, it was prophesied, prophesied that I would descend into the depths of hell three times, and I did. That's what Solomon said. And Dick did, too. And and he he told me this story, and later, after he died, not not long after he died, his wife Pauline told me the same story, but Dick had said, "I want you to tell the truth. I want you to tell the real, you know, story." So while I would have liked to have written just this beautiful lyrical celebration of one of the most amazing talents and people I've ever met, it ended up being a very painful thing to tell and a very painful thing to write. And uh, I, you know, I just. It, it went in directions that I didn't fully intend, and I think it's different from anything I've ever written because it has a downside to it that I could, if I had written this long piece on Charlie Rich, it might have had the same thing, but I didn't. And, and so it was just an extraordinary experience, and I learned so much from Dick in the, you know, in the brief, relatively brief time that I really knew him, but, I, but it was a hell of a ride. You know, there's, uh, Dick ex- expresses a kind of regret about having ever left the little nuclear family. He, he left Hardwick High School only weeks before his graduation, 1948 or 9 or so in there. And, um, and yet y- y- the story also includes that of uh, Lenny Bro's uh, uh, brother, Denny. Right. And, and, and I've never encountered such a contrast between... Uh, you know, the sort of Odyssean um, journey of, of the Dick Curlis figure, uh, notwithstanding his expression of regret. Um, and yet, Denny Bro, a brilliant guitarist, uh, the brother of a famed guitarist, who didn't make that journey, wanted, it seems, recognition beyond what he was ever going to earn if he wasn't willing to, say, make that journey to right, Nashville. Right. And I was just f- struck by the uh, by the presence of both of these figures, and both of them from Maine, by the way, of course, uh, uh, born in Maine. Which has a tradition of country music going back before the Grand Old Opry, as do many places in the country. I mean, the Grand Old Opry is merely the commercial expression of something that went on all over the country. But, but here was the thing with Denny, which was so amazing, was Dick showed up with Denny Bro, and first of all, nobody knew who Denny Bro was, which... I mean, don't tell Denny. And, and everybody knew who he was, you know, after the session because he's such a great player and a storyteller and he's a terrific performer. But, but in any case, he, Dick shows up with him. And my guess would have been, 
when Dick showed up with him that what he was doing was the same thing I've seen many artists, including Merle Haggard, which is just bringing the familiar along with him, bringing a world that he's familiar with into a world that maybe he's not so sure of himself in. And so Denny would be not a security blanket, but somebody who would anchor him. But that wasn't it at all. That had not. Dick was perfectly comfortable, and he was he directed the whole session. I mean, he and Jake worked together, and they were working towards a common goal. But Dick had no reservations about his place in this world, and he became an inspiration to every musician who played on the session. The reason he brought Denny was the reason you are talking about. He wanted to give Denny a taste of something else, and he wanted to be sure that Denny played a subsidiary, a subordinate role. I mean, Duke Levine is such a not such not just such a great player, but such a generous player and a generous person that he was perfectly willing to give Denny all the solos that he wanted. But Dick said, "No, Denny's going to play acoustic guitar for the most part. He's playing rhythm guitar. He's playing behind, you know, Duke." And it was to give a sense of not just it wasn't humility. It wasn't it was. Just to say, are you is this what you're ready to commit yourself to? This kind of struggle, and he articulated it to me. Dick did, although I I'm not sure I fully grasped it, but uh, he did articulate it as and and talked about how Denny had gotten in touch with Chet Atkins, who was uh, uh, his brother Lenny Bro's mentor in Nashville, and Denny got in touch and said, you know, I was thinking about coming down. Or th- and this may be doing Denny a disservice, but this, I, in shorthand, you know, Denny got in touch with Chet, said, well, you know, I may come down to Nashville, um, you know, could you set something up for me? And Chet, in the way Dick told it, said, you're going to have to do the same as everybody else. You're going to have to come here, and you're going to have to subordinate yourself to a quest, <laughs> to an Odyssean quest. I don't, Chet could have said that, but I don't think he did. But, uh, and that this is the choice, and that that's what, and Dick wanted to be sure that Denny understood the terms of the choice and whether he wanted to make that choice. And in the end, Denny didn't make that choice. He stayed in Maine, and you can hear him, if not every night of the week, many nights of the week, playing in different venues in Maine and playing great. But that's where he stayed. All right. Well, um, thank you so much, Peter. We could go on and on, and there's so much more to uh, looking to get lost. But uh, thanks for joining us today for this conversation. And I thought I'd ask if there's something in the album that Dick Curlis made that your son Jake Gorelnik produced uh, traveling through that you would like to recommend as a um, as a favorite that we might go out on here. Uh, well, you know, Since I Met You, Jesus is a great song. The uh, Merle Travis song, um, he doesn't do Nine Pound Hammer. What's, what, what is the, uh, the lyric uh, traveling through comes from... Um, Oh man, I I can't think of it, but th- but that, that that's a great song too, the Merle Tra- the Merle Travis song. There, uh, or uh, I never go around mirrors anymore, or King of the Bl- King of the Blues maybe. That's that would be the one I would choose, King of the Blues. Oh, and what a title, by the way! I never go around mirrors anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but King of the Blues was a song Jake put together a, 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 a you know a tape of uh, I put together a tape too, but but Jake's tape was the one that prevailed but he put together a tape and it had King of the Blues on it and I'm saying to Jake man I don't think he's going to like that that just doesn't I mean it's a terrific song as it turned out it was a song that you know I, I think he was familiar with but from the moment that he listened to it he said that's my story <laughs> it's just it's, again it's not a very up story I mean 
Charlie Rich said to me one time, he says, man, I just don't dig happy songs. And Dick, Dick did dig happy songs to some extent, but there's a lot of depth of feeling and just deep emotion in the songs that he recorded for that album. Well, thank you, Peter. It's been nice talking with you today. And now let's hear Dick Curlis from his final album, Traveling Through, singing King of the Blues. I see a man whose face shows the trace of where his life has been. I see the telltale signs of bitterness sitting in. And this barroom mirror reflects no tears when there's nothing left to lose. Just a face that's faced the bitter truth And the king of the blues King King of the blues Won't you look at him now And walk in Thank you. 